This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is talking to Diana Pingisha, whose historic fantasy novel, A Curse of Roses, is just being released. Welcome, Diana. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Why don't you start with a quick synopsis for your book? I believe this is your debut novel? It is my debut novel, and it's about Princess Isabel of Aragon, who is engaged to marry the King of Portugal. They're not quite married yet, contrary to what would be historically accurate, but I took that liberty. And she thinks she's cursed in that every all the food she touches turns to flowers, and she desperately wants to end that because she's waiting, wasting a lot of food. She's not able to eat. And it makes her sympathize with the Portuguese who are also starving after many long years of war. And so she sets out to find an enchanted Mora so she can bargain with her to get rid of the curse in exchange for the Mora's freedom. Of course, it's not all that simple and some things happen and there's romance and all that. Yes. I, I had a question about the character of the Mora, Fatia, uh, sorry, Fatian. 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 Yes. So when I was reading the description of the book and it mentioned the enchanted Mora, the way it talked about her, uh, the character Fatian, made it sound like this was a type of supernatural creature. But then reading the book, she is a Moor. She, from before the Reconquista, when Spain and Portugal were under Islamic rule. And it, it was a little bit again, confusing to me because there seems to be this motif of there are people who are enchanted muras where there's multiple of them. And I was wondering, is this a a motif from folklore or is this something you came up with? Because it made it sound like there's this class of people who were, you know, enchanted to be, you know, imprisoned in some way supernaturally. Uh, So, yeah, it's actually a a lot of legends in Alentejo and you know, the Lisbon area, Sintra, Extremadura, and the Algarve. So the areas that were under more occupation, the longest, have a lot of enchanted Mora legends. And mostly it's them being enchanted to be trapped in some place for various circumstances. In Fatian's case, it's an adaptation of the legend of the Mora Salukia, who was a Moor princess. Well, she was the ruler of the town along with her father. And she was engaged to Brafama, who was an Al-Qaeda, and that's like someone who rules a small province. And when the Portuguese took, then it was Almanija, in the book it's Terra de Moura, when they took it, they ambushed Brafama's forces, they took his, his clothes and missive, and they infiltrated Moura that way, and that's how they took back the town. But there are several of them. Okay. Scattered all around. There's one in my dad's hometown, uh-huh. Where if you go to this certain lake and a snake approaches you and you show neither fear nor um, violence and you let the snake climb up your body and kiss you, you free the Mora from her enchantment. That is fascinating. And I, I love that it's you wove it into the story in that way. 
So I have to say, I love seeing a story with a medieval setting like this, because let's face it, you know, sapphic historical fiction primarily focuses on the 19th century and later. But I love this setting. Do you you delve into the social and political aspects of the period after the Reconquista so deeply? Do you have a background in history? No, I don't have a background in history. I just researched a lot for <laughs> this book, interviewing some historians, reading a lot of interviews, checking out archaeology, because archaeology was really important in me, finding out that even though the Moors were mostly an Islamic, it was an Islamic caliphate, the caliphate did not demand conversion, just vassalage. So if you, you could be a Moor and be Christian or Jewish as uh-huh. well as Muslim, which we do not talk about because it's easier to think of them as all this monogamous, not monogamous, <laughs> all this... Um, homogeneous. Homogeneous uh, population that was like infidels and we need to take our land back from them. Yeah. And the truth was maybe more complicated than that. And it was just mostly entitled people who had the commoners shift their allegiances away from them because Christian overlords did not treat people well. Uh So is it that unthinkable that, you know, the commoner people would be like, oh, the caliphate maybe will treat us better. So we'll start allying ourselves with them and kick the Christians back up north, and then the Christians some um, 400 years later decided to take back the land from their of their ancestors. Typical medieval warfare. Yeah, the politics and religion were pretty thoroughly tangled there. Often, I think it was more politics than religion. It was a lot of politics, and so <laughs> many people have been done dirty. Yeah. So you touch on some of the differences in attitudes between medieval Islamic culture and medieval Christian culture towards female homosexuality. Um, Where did you do your research for that? And how did it help you develop a queer story? So I found it through a sheer luck, a Wikipedia article, and I checked the sources. And the sources were uh, papers, academic papers, on medieval lesbians in the Moor times. And they were written by Sahar Ahmed. Ah, yes. I'm not pronouncing her name wrong. And she'd written about how in the for the Moors, it wasn't really that much of a problem. They just thought you had a disease that was passed down by eating certain foods. <laughs> and the one that really stuck to me was eating flowers off the orange tree while breastfeeding an infant girl uh-huh. would turn her gay. <laughs> and the way they saw this was they were filled with this disease that made their bodies hot. And the only way to cure it or alleviate the symptoms would be to... Um, rub the affected parts against a similarly afflicted woman. And I thought that was just fascinating. Hey, makes logical sense, right? Make, I mean, the girls I bet they were happy. It was like, yeah, I need an, a new bout of treatment. Uh, yes. But of course, Christian was like, Christianity was much worse with that. Yeah. And, and I, I like how you, it made the whole relationship not an issue for Fatian, whereas... Isabel was very much all tied up in, you know, Christian guilt and sin around sexuality in general. And in fact, I I saw a lot of resonances in Isabel's experiences and sort of modern themes around adolescent girls with eating disorders and self-harm. Was that something you were doing deliberately? That was very deliberate. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's like one of my little own voices aspects, and that I went through that, so I knew all too well. And it wasn't that hard to go back and because I have near photographic memory. I remember everything like an elephant. So I was just like, hmm, when I was 17, here's what was happening. Because I was raised in a very conservative hometown with those very Christian grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And that was just a lot of my way of thinking passed on to Isabel. And Fatian is more like the way I am now. We should just all just be happy. Yeah, the the aspects of how Christianity, the attitudes in Christianity at the time towards the body and towards one's responsibility to suffer, to be good, they, it really felt true to the history I've read and that it worked very well as a device for, for expressing Isabel's ambiguity about all of her experiences. Yeah, I just think it's a whole lot of crap that Christianity was like, made people think that way. Because you don't even have to go back a very long time. Mother Teresa believed that if you were suffering, you were closer to God. And that is not true, I think. Yeah. Like what God should want you to suffer when you can be good and help other people not suffer. True. So what was the specific inspiration for this particular story? I think you mentioned there was a, a legend about turning bread into roses. Yeah, so in my hometown, Stromoz, which is where sec the second half of the book takes place, we talk about as if it happened there. And Isabel of Aragon, she's a huge historical figure for us. We have a statue of her. My high school's named after her. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of it. And I grew up hearing that legend. And when I was between projects, I was thinking about what exactly, what story can I say, can I tell that no one else probably will? Because I was thinking about already writing for a foreign market. And I knew for sure that pretty much no one would grab my historical legend from my hometown about this very saintly queen. Uh -huh. And that's where it was born. And then the more I read about Isabel, the more I realized she might not have been straight because uh -huh. she not only was she very pious she demonstrated a lot of behaviors that were just not straight you could also read her as a sexual mm. but I really wanted a lesbian love story <laughs> <laughs> but I understand if some people read her as asexual uh -huh. and it's valid all interpretations are valid yeah I, I have heard of that that legend of the the transformation story it was the original legend was if I'm recalling correctly, that she was giving away bread to the to the poor people and her husband disapproved of this. And so when she was caught at it, at, at distributing bread, uh, by a miracle, uh, the bread was turned into roses. And so she, you know, she was not guilty of, of distributing yeah. bread. That is the original one. And I found that the original version is actually Erzibeth of Hungary. Ah. In that, and she was Isabel's great aunt, so they were related, and Isabel was named after her. Uh -huh. And then I also found that the Spanish in the 17th century, if I'm not mistaken, also had their own miracle of roses with a girl named Isabella. So I guess Christians love their girls with variations of the name Isabel and roses and their miracles to show their husbands that it's not wrong to feed the poor. Yeah. 
And I imagine that the, the legends get transferred and, and assigned to new people to yeah. make them more relevant, which, exactly. which is what you have done is reassign yeah. it to make it more relevant. I brought it to the 21st century, kind of. So you are Portuguese and you are drawing on Portuguese legends. And I think I remember from some of our correspondence that, you know, that English is your second language or second or, or later than that. What was the experience like writing commercially for a market that is, is not your native language and writing in a language that is not your native language? I don't mean this in the sense of fluency in the language, uh, but what was it like to, to target an audience that is not you with this book? Some parts of it were tricky because I knew that I wanted to include a lot of Portuguese words that I know a lot of people will not know the meaning of and they will have to Google it. But when I was writing it, I was like, well, why should I cater to the American gaze when American writers do not cater to the gaze of international readers when they get translated. True. So a lot of it was me doing my own thing and keeping on with it. I did make sure to include context. So, you know, for instance, that Migas is a bread-based dish. You don't know exactly what it's made, but you know it's made of bread. It also uh -huh. includes like uh, meat juices and a lot of uh, heavy spices, not spices from India, like por traditional Portuguese spices that we make here. Uh -huh. I wanted to include like, I did all of that with the food. Yeah. That I left some context and the poems, which are British's magic, where you just have to speak to the earth and it will listen to you if you do it well and with a certain intent. I wanted those to be like, in other books, when they have spells, people use Latin uh -huh. a lot of time. And I was just like, well, why shouldn't I use Portuguese, which is derived of Latin? So I just smacked Portuguese in there. And if people want to know what it says, again, Google is your friend. Because you don't get that with, you know, native English speakers either. It's a spell. Yeah, it's like it if, people get translated. Can, if people can read Tolkien and not balk at the Elvish in it, why can't they read your books and not balk at the Portuguese? Yep, exactly. And there was also a lot of me including Portuguese culture in that people like all the touching. Uh -huh. And I do not like all the touching. <laughs> I'm a very just like, unless we're really good close friends, in that case, I don't mind. But mostly I'm very touch averse. Uh -huh. And people here are like always with the kisses on the cheek. <laughs> and touching your arm and your hand and your shoulder. I'm like, no. Isabel also does that, and that she's not very used to touching people. Uh-huh. And then she's all confused with like, I don't mind Fatian touching me. Why is that? Yes, I enjoyed how you showed her awakening desire, where you know it was not sudden and instantaneous. It was it was new sensations when she's experiencing a lot of new sensations in that part of the story and trying to sort out, you know, what's going on here? How is this different from what I'm supposed to feel for my fiance and all that? Um, and it felt very realistic. I really enjoyed that. It's all very overwhelming when you get all these new things at once. So I'm glad you thought uh -huh. that was good. So again, I was drawing from my own experience. <laughs> they say, write what you know, truth is you should. And, and yet you made it universal. 
I would not have read that book and said, oh, this is somebody with a self-insertion character writing about her own experiences because it did have the tie-ins with Christian attitudes towards, you know, towards suffering and self-harm and towards, um, towards eating and pleasures of the flesh, as it were. And it, it felt very true to the era to me. Yeah, that was also important to me to have like, because I know teens will read it and it's fine if you enjoy, you know, the pleasures of the flesh and it's fine if you like girls, it's fine if you like boys, it's fine if you like neither. <laughs> Just leave your own, like a friend of mine and I was saying, leave your own truth, <laughs> do your own journey. Yeah, but she's not necessarily a self-insert. I just <laughs> put a lot of my behaviors onto her. She's way too nice. Ah, uh, yeah. No one is like, you'd need to be a saint. And she was actually like that. And that was both troublesome because I had to write the nicest character. And then she was nice to her own detriment. Yeah. Which a lot of people don't understand. But some people are like that. I've met people like that. And yep. it's a wild ride to get them to be a little bit selfish. Yes. I, I do feel that at, at some point in this interview, we should note that you know, we've been talking about the eating disorders and the self-harm, and this should be a content note for people who might have uh, a history or anxieties around that to be very aware of what they're going into. It's, it's very graphic in some cases. Yeah, it is a content note in the book, too. Yeah, I saw that. We had, I was really happy about that. I'm glad that publishers are becoming more open to including that these days. Yeah, they should. Just like I said before, um, the mo movies have ratings, video yeah. games have ratings, and they say in the back what they got those ratings for. Why are we so reticent about books doing that? It makes no sense. Yeah. Especially like, even if you, you can be prepared and if it does not interest you, if you're not in a place mentally to read about that stuff, you can just read something else. Right. Which I think it should it should happen. Like people are allowed to not want to read the book, but I think publishers are too focused on, oh my God, we might lose sales. <laughs> well, isn't it worse if you trigger someone and then they badmouth the book because it sent them on a completely valid, you know, downward spiral? Yeah. It's preferable to lose on a sale than to just have a lot of bad reviews because it did not warn people that it was in there. And, and while we're on the subject of content notes for all of the listeners, be aware that it does have a happy ending. It does. It's a it's romance. It has a happy ending. Everyone's happy. Yes. Everyone holds hands and sings the kumbaya is what I have to say. <laughs> so what other projects are you working on currently that we might look forward to? Oh, aside from the ghost writing that I do in freelance to pay the bills, which we sh shall not talk about. Those books are terrible. I do not. Oh. I do not like them. Well, and the whole point of ghostwriting is that they don't know it's you that's writing. They don't know it's me, and it's like exactly how I want it. <laughs> but I've been working on my own spare time after I do my ghostwriting of the day. I do some more writing, and I wanted because I had this idea before, and I wrote forty k on it, so I'm back to it. It's called the Faceless Dolls. And my main inspiration was the Matrafona or Marafona dolls that we have in Alentejo in a certain festival. Girls make them to have like a blessed marriage or to like have a guy ask them for marriage. And they're cloth dolls, rag dolls, and they have no face, just a blank face. 
So I want some real cosmic horror to look <laughs> and main characters who look like they have no face in the beginning, but they do grow a face later on. And also it's that, but in the Bone Chapel, because ever since Evora, and I think there's some in Rome, there are more, there's like this chapel that inside it's completely made out of bone. Oh yeah. The walls are bones and bones and bones. And ever since I visited it super early, I was like nine, I think. I was Ooh. fascinated by it. Yeah, I think there's uh, in the in the catacombs in Paris, there's one of those too. Like who thinks this will be a good idea to just have bones everywhere? And also, how many people died <laughs> to make this happen? Well, centuries and centuries of people. I wonder how long, I have to look at how long it took to build. Uh-huh. Just like, because there are so many, way too many bones. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a, a really good prompt for a horror story. A really good, I wanted it to be cosmic horror. Uh-huh. Call it Portuguese bloodborne on steroids based on the bone chapel and with faceless people and chaotic pansexuals. It sounds like you are setting up a really great career for drawing on your personal heritage to uh, turn it into very innovative fiction. I mean, why not? Other people do it. It was just like, this is what I can do. And I also want to do a retelling of the Baker of Alshbahata, which is another legend that we have about this woman who, after going through a lot of peril and toil, ended up as a baker in Alshbahata when we were having a dynastic crisis. Uh -huh. in, in the 13-somethings, it's at the end of our first dynasty. And uh, the king only left a daughter. And because we all know girls can't rule, like med medieval, as holy, uh, they had no legitimate hair. Uh -huh. And we had Leonor Tells at the time being queen regent. She was like the, she was a wife to King Fernando. And even though she improved the country, people were all very concerned that she was really turning us to belong to Castella. She was not. Mm -hmm. And she was a very ambitious, very scheming woman that history did so dirty. And I want to get her and I want to get the baker of Alshbarata, who, during the Castilian invasion in Alshbarata, killed 12 soldiers and stuck them in her oven. What <laughs> Castilian. Yeah, she has big gay energy, too. The baker, the baker of Alshbahata. Yeah, let me know when you're uh, working on that one. <laughs> yeah, soon. I started, but I need a lot more research on the sociopolitical situation. Because she's going to be a commoner, uh -huh. the main character. And commoners notoriously did not care about upper class politics. Because uh -huh. news didn't reach them, really. They knew who was king, maybe, and that the king died. But aside from that, I mean, they were conscripted to war all the time. Yep. With these things. So I need to figure out a way to get her from the Algarve, the Algarve, Algarve where she was from, up there to Alshbahata, because a lot happens. She, at one point, she gets taken by pirates uh -huh. and, like, swims out of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all from the original legend. Yeah, from the original. Because I know the short version, but I recently found out the extended version with all the pirates and duels. Uh, so this sounds like like a, a a pulp action series. Almost, like a lot of horrible stuff just kept happening to this poor woman. Uh huh. Wow. Well, you've got a lot of projects lined up. That's great. 
Yeah, going back to all the Portuguese legends that we are not exploiting even here, <laughs> which is a shame that no one else does enchanted mortars and all that. Yes. So if people wanted to follow you on social media so they can keep up with all your projects, where can they find you? They can find me, I'm usually on Twitter or Instagram, and it's my last name. If you Google Diana Pingisha, pretty much it's there. Like, it's me. There's like, I recently found out there's only 92 people in Portugal with my last name. And <laughs> two in Spain, and they're all my family. They're, they're all related. <laughs> So that means it will be easy for me to hunt down the links so I can post them in the show notes. Yep, Diana Pingisha, it just takes you there. So thank you so much, Diana Pingisha, for sharing your time with the Lesbian Deserve Motif Project. No, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 